You're listening to a message from Doxa Church on the book of Daniel, which we believe has more relevance for the church than ever before, as Christians face the challenge to not just survive, but thrive as God's people in a changing world. For more resources, visit doxa-church.com. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, The king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Thank you, Penny. How are we all doing? Great. Good. I'm doing well, too. My name is Justin. I am an elder candidate here at uh, DOXA. It is great to be here with you. Uh, We are in week three of our series in Daniel, and uh, it has been uh, a good series thus far. I think that this week is uh, the most, or I'll say one of the most important weeks of the whole series, and so I'm super glad you're here. Uh, Today we're looking at a crazy story. 
right? The part that Penny just read is crazy enough. It gets crazier. Uh, the, the tyrant king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, this egomaniac who has enslaved Israel, uh, has a bad dream and wakes up and wants to kill everybody, okay? Um, my, uh, my kids have bad dreams all the time. Uh, that has never been the so what on it uh, for them, thankfully. Uh, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, says, not only do I need an interpretation of this dream, but in order that I can know that the interpretation isn't just something you made up, I want you to also tell me what I dreamed. So uh, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to tell me my dream and then tell me the interpretation of it, which is, uh, which is quite the ask, right? So we see Daniel and his friends in this crazy situation. And if you are new to this series, haven't been here for a couple weeks, uh, Daniel and all of Israel uh, was taken over by Babylon. Jerusalem fell uh, to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar chose a group of kind of royal, uh, powerful, good-looking, intelligent, talented people to take back with him to Babylon to indoctrinate into the Babylonians' ways. And so they received Babylonian uh, Babylonian education, Babylonian names. Uh, They received access to the king and a job in his court. Uh, They were supposed to uh, take on his diet. They drew the line at uh, meat and wine for some reason. Uh, That's not where I draw my line. I draw my line on the other side of that one. Uh, But uh, they, they, this is kind of the situation that they're in now. And now they are kind of part of this circle of the wise men and the scholars and the seers and diviners and those kinds of things. And uh, so this has been really good so far, but now the king has a bad dream and lays this kind of ridiculous expectation on this group of people. And Daniel and his friends are now getting the unintended consequences of working for a crazy king. Okay? So in the face of real evil by this tyrant king, uh, Daniel and his friends respond in a way that I, I would submit, and this is going to be my main idea for today, so if you're taking notes, main idea. The most important task and most critical tool that Christians have while in exile is to bear witness to the truth to bear witness to the truth. This is what Daniel and his friends do in this insane situation. They bear witness to three things. That God is involved, that God is in control, and that God is coming for Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? That God is involved, God is in control, and God is coming for Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Before we get into the rest of the text, I want to frame this up for you just a little bit. Babylon is a polytheistic culture, gods all over the place, but the person that stands at the top of the pantheon of the gods in Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, as we will see next week, he is not only the king and and arguably the most powerful human being on earth at this time, but he is also to be worshipped as a god. Okay? So in the na- ancient Near East, when one kingdom defeats another kingdom, that's not just uh, understood to be a political move, but a religious one also. So it's not just that the kingdom of Babylon defeated the kingdom of Israel, it's that Babylon's gods defeated Israel's God, okay? rendered him uh, powerless and irrelevant. 
So what's interesting about this moment of, of Daniel bearing witness to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar is that it is not just a political move. As we'll see, there's political ramifications. But he is making a spiritual statement inserting the truth about God into a culture that largely considers Yahweh, Israel's God, our God, to be a non-factor, to be irrelevant. It doesn't, isn't a player in the game whatsoever. It's not like there's this fight, well, who's God's going to, no. Yahweh's defeated in Babylonian eyes. So um, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, one of the most influential philosophers uh, in the world today. He wrote a book called uh, Our Secular Age. In it, he says this, and I, I quoted this in the little promo video we did. He says, the, the movement of Western culture in the last 100 years is a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. Okay, here's what he means. In the last 100 years, uh, the, the kind of core change we've seen in our culture is that we have moved from a culture that um, not only did most of the human beings in the Western culture assume the existence of God, but there was, in his language, a social architecture, or just like social institutions, social pressures that propped up that understanding. What that means is, I believe that there's a God, and so does my neighbor, and his neighbor, and his neighbor, and his neighbor. That's the default understanding of the people in our culture. In addition to that, institutions like the, the federal government, our schools, and others propped up that understanding. So there, it was really easy, and in fact, probably difficult to be an atheist 100 years ago in the Western world, so Western Europe and America. One of the fundamental shifts is that as other movements and other ideas and other kind of market forces and different things have emerged in power, what's fallen away is the institutional support of that idea and the social architecture support of that idea so that now it's not just, it's not assumed that there is a God and that God is involved, but now it's one of many options. And as he says, often it's the most problematic option of them all, right? So in other words, it's easier today in the Western world to kind of have a vague, maybe agnostic view of God or kind of go, hey, whatever, it's cool. It doesn't really matter. So the undercurrent of that isn't that now we're in this world that's fighting God. It's now that God is increasingly irrelevant. And it's just kind of like, yeah, sure, if you, if, yeah, if you believe in God, that's, that's fine. But we're talking about business here. Or, or yeah, I mean, if you have faith, that's fine. Whatever faith that is, I don't, I don't care. But we're talking about politics and, and civics right now. So let's separate those things. Okay. So it's now become more and more problematic to be a believer in God. This idea is why we're doing the Daniel series and why we are talking about being exiles in our own Babylon. Not because we are slaves, and I, I, I doubt that we will ever be, or at least certainly in our lifetime, but because we live in a world which largely and increasingly considers our God a non-factor. Okay? So Charles Taylor wrote this book, Secular Age. It's about this big. Uh, it's crazy dense, super hard, really influential. So I wrote, read a book about that book. Um, and uh, it's by a, another philosopher, a theologian named James K.A. Smith. He teaches at Calvin, uh, one, really one of my favorites right now. Um, 
And I want to read to you the preface to uh, part of the preface to his book about Taylor's book. It speaks to this issue in a way that I I think is really important. Please hang with me on this because it frames up our, our whole time this morning. He says this, imagine you're a pastor or a church planter, I know that's hard, who has moved to Brooklyn or Berkeley or Boulder or Seattle. Maybe you received a call to transplant yourself from Georgia or Grand Rapids or some other religious region of the country, sensing a burden to proclaim the gospel in one of the many so-called godless urban regions of North America. You've left your Jerusalem on a mission to Babylon. You came with what you thought were all the answers to the unanswered questions these secular people had. But it didn't take long for you to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered, They were unasked, and they weren't questions. That is, your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers, for some bit of information that is missing from their mental maps. To the contrary, they have completely different maps. You realize that instead of nagging questions about God or the afterlife, your neighbors are oriented by all sorts of longings and projects and quests for significance. There doesn't seem to be anything missing from their lives. So you can't just come proclaiming the good news of a Jesus who fills their, quote, God-shaped hole. They don't have any sense that the secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor. In many ways, they have constructed webs of meaning that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives, though a lot hinges on that almost. Here's what he's saying. The move from a world where... uh, Everybody basically believed in God and everything around us supported that idea to a move where really the institutions are not only not supporting, but, but probably de-emphasizing and making it difficult for us to believe those things in public. The result is that this secularized society it, it, that we live in, it, we are now surrounded by people who aren't searching for kind of which God or how can I find more of God, that God has just become a completely irrelevant part of their lives. It's just, a, it's just a non-starter. That they've constructed ways of meaning, ways of finding significance, ways of seeing kind of what their future holds and what they should pursue that have nothing to do with God at all. So he says, our evangelism that comes in and says, you know that, that meaning you're searching for? You know that, that God-shaped hole in your heart? I know, his, his name's Jesus. Because there's no sense that there is a God-shaped hole in their heart at all. And he says, almost, right? Like they've been able to construct this life that almost answers every question. And there is a great deal of burden on that idea of almost. Because this new concept of life that is this kind of godless life that we construct meaning through work and through relationships and identity and all kinds of other things is itself propped up by prosperity, by luxury, by the culture around us. And so what happens is, or what can happen, is what Tim Keller refers to as kind of evangelism in the 21st century, which is existential need meets intellectual credibility. Did you get that? Existential need meets intellectual credibility. In other words, 
as long as this life is propped up by prosperity and by the people around us and the, the institutions around us and all, as long as everything's going okay and as long as our house keeps gaining 5% in value every year and as long as our stock options continue to vest and as long as our kids at least get Bs and as long as everything's cool, then, then that world we've constructed can maintain its meaning. But that never happens forever. There always comes a moment in our lives where there is what Keller calls existential need. There is a crisis that hits. For Nebuchadnezzar, it's a bad dream. Seems a little sensitive. But that bad dream throws his whole world into chaos. He is the most powerful human on the planet. Everybody does what he says. He's rich beyond imagination. He has one bad dream that he thinks means something and he completely freaks out. When Keller talks about existential need meets intellectual credibility, what he's saying to us as Christians is that we can be prepared, so steeped it, that we can be in the gospel, so steeped in, in our understanding of the way that the world is, and in relationship with our neighbors and our coworkers, our employees, our bosses, our schoolmates, our teachers, or whoever, in relationship with them, so that when they meet that everybody goes through crisis, right? That inevitable crisis hits and they start to say, okay, what does this mean? How do I make sense of it? This existential crisis means I don't know what this means to me anymore. My, my framework of the world doesn't make sense because I have a framework of the world that's propped up by prosperity and luxury. And when prosperity and luxury go away and I just have to face the nakedness of who I've made myself to be, it all comes crashing down. And Keller goes, if we can be there already in relationship and then have an intellectually credible, just bear witness to the truth about the world because we know that our understanding, the gospel makes sense of the world, that everything that's happening in the world can be made sense of by our understanding of the gospel. So we go, you're dealing with pain and suffering and your whole world was propped up by prosperity and luxury and now it's gone? I can help you make sense of that. The gospel tells me what suffering is for. And so we can be for these people what their worldview can never do, which is make sense of everything that the world might throw at us. That's what Daniel does for Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. Nebuchadnezzar's life has been really good up until this moment. He has this crazy dream that he thinks means something, and he, he starts killing people until Daniel steps up and goes, I think I can help. I think I know the God who can help. So here's Daniel's response. Verse 16. You with me? There's nowhere to go but forward anyway, but I like to ask. Verse 16. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. I love this move. Think about this. Does Daniel, has Daniel prayed yet? Let's start there. Class? No. Does Daniel know what the dream is yet? Does Daniel know the interpretation of the dream yet? No. But he hears, hey, Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all of you guys unless he figures this dream out. And Daniel's first response is, give me some time with the king. But like, 
tomorrow because I, I got to go figure this thing out, but I, I want some time. What does Daniel know at this point? Well, he doesn't know anything about the dream, but he knows some stuff. He knows God. He knows God. We talked about that last week. Daniel knows God, and he knows God is good. What's the second thing he knows? He knows Jeremiah 29 that we talked about two weeks ago, that God has sent Israel to Babylon on purpose, that Nebuchadnezzar didn't like mess up God's plan and steal Israel from Jerusalem. It says in Jeremiah 29, God sent Israel to Babylon, sent them into exile. And he says he did so for a reason, a bunch of reasons. One of them was for the good of Babylon. He says, pray for Babylon, work for the welfare of Babylon, for in their welfare, you will find your welfare. In their thriving, you will find their thriving. So what Daniel knows is God is good and that God has sent us here for a purpose, for the common good of, Israel, or for the common good of Babylon. He knows that. Now, he doesn't know exactly how it's going to play out. He doesn't know exactly what you know, Daniel's specific role in all that is, but he knows that God has sent Israel to Babylon for the sake of Babylon. Last thing he knows, turn back to chapter 1, verse 17. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So Daniel goes, Gosh, I know that I am uniquely equipped for this moment. I know God, and I know he's good. I know that God has sent my people to Babylon for the good of Babylon, for the common good in Babylon, among other things, but at least for that. And third, I know that God has uniquely gifted me and equipped me for this moment, given me the ability to perhaps answer. Now, Maybe he uses me in a miraculous way right now. Maybe he doesn't. But I know this for sure. If he's going to use anybody, it might be me. Keep going. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, who are uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? So he knows God. He knows God's mission for Israel. He knows that he's uniquely equipped, but he still knows, I need help. We need community. We need each other. God has given us unique gifts, but he's given us all unique gifts, and he hasn't given any of us all the gifts. So he goes, I know I need help. I know I need my boys with me. He goes to them, and then he does what? Told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. He prays. He prays. I know these things. I know God's good. I know why we're here. I know I'm uniquely gifted. I know I need my friends. And now I know I need God. I've got to pray. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, and before I read this little song that Daniel writes here, I'm going to read it with a certain emphasis, and I think you'll pick up on the emphasis. But I, I think Daniel wrote this as a theological statement, a way to bear witness to the truth of this situation in, in, a, in a unique way to speak to this situation. So see if, see if you can pick up on what Daniel's doing here. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. 
He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Immediately, Daniel bears witness to the fact that God is involved in this moment. It's not just that God gave them a mission and sent them on. It's not just that God gave Daniel and his friends a unique ability, unique skill set, and said, go do it. That God is still continually involved. And if God did all of these things, who then didn't do those things? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. This is a statement of, of sovereignty, of supremacy, of true kingship. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Did you hear that? Do you see what Daniel just said to King Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, it's one thing for Daniel kind of behind the scenes in his own room. He's writing himself a song and he's singing about how God is sovereign and not Nebuchadnezzar. It's a whole other thing to stand in front of the most powerful human being on the planet and say, you're thinking about this world all wrong, man. Your magicians, your astrologers, your wise men, they can't help you. You, you have a fundamentally broken worldview, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't understand the way the world works. I, I think about it this way. Nebuchadnezzar has this problem, and he's looking for the solution, but he's looking like this. He's looking out over his kingdom and going, okay, the astrologers, can they do it? Can the Chaldeans do it? Can the, my wise men do it? Can my diviners do it? Can my prophets? He's looking horizontally and going, I can't find the problem, so I'm just going to kill everybody. And Daniel steps in front of him and goes, here's your problem. Do this. You have a fundamentally misunderstood vision of the way the world works. Your worldview is completely wrong and backwards. Man, that takes guts. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to ne King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lie in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, 
but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Notice Daniel's humility here. This is, this is crucial. The temptation would be to take credit and position himself as exceptional, to earn points or prove ourselves, prove himself. That's the temptation. To say, yeah, you know what, King, uh, all your magicians, all your diviners, all your astrologers, all your Chaldeans, they don't know what's up. I know what's up. And to absolutely take credit, but that would have been to play the same game. And that temptation is there for us as well. The temptation for us to prove ourselves in a culture that is increasingly difficult for us to live in is very present and very real. But if we do that, we play their game. If Daniel had done that and taken credit for, for knowing the interpretation of the dream, he would have just been playing Nebuchadnezzar's game. His game, Nebuchadnezzar's, is to give and take credit at a human level, a functional atheism. Daniel instead bears witness to the presence and involvement of God. When we do the same, when we take credit in a way that just reflects this, and we go, no, see, you were just looking in the wrong direction. You were looking over here, but I was over here, and I'm the answer to your problem. We portray to the people around us, we bear witness to the people around us, a functional atheism, which just says, the problem isn't uh, that, that you're, you're horizontal and you gotta be vertical. The problem is you're horizontal, but you're looking at the wrong person. I'm your guy. I should get the glory. You should trust in me. You should give me the power that you were giving to them. That's functionally atheism. Functionally says that God has, has nothing to do with this. And so we bear witness to that. Instead, we should bear witness to a new way of being. Not just that we can compete with our peers, but that we think about the world totally differently. And Daniel stands in front of Nebuchadnezzar and says, your problem is that you've just conceived of the world the wrong way. In your mind, Yahweh is a non-factor, a non-entity, completely irrelevant. In truth, he's your only hope. That's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. And then he tells him the dream. You saw, O king, verse 31, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell, you, tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Catch that. You catch that? Daniel stands in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and goes, you know the, the kingdom you have and the power you have 
and the might that you have and the glory that you have and the people that you own and the animals that you own and even just in case you're going to take credit for the birds and the birds, God gave them to you. God gave them to you. You didn't get any of that, Nebuchadnezzar. It was all given to you by God because God wanted you to have it. Not because you were uniquely worthy of power and glory and might, but because God gives power and glory and might to whom he chooses for his own glory, power, and might. That's bold. 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. This seems like a small little sentence, but it's actually, I kind of love it. um, Because in Nebuchadnezzar's worldview, there's no way verse 39 is possible. In a worldview where might makes right and the strong eat the weak, an inferior kingdom cannot defeat a superior kingdom. But Daniel goes, "Um, everything you have has been given to you and it's going to be taken away from you and it's going to be done. God's going to use an inferior kingdom to do it just to illustrate to you just how sovereign he is. And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. This is evangelism in exile. It's not the Romans road. It's not the four spiritual laws. It's just a man who knows his God, bearing witness to the truth about the world. It doesn't require a script It doesn't require fancy arguments, just the courage to bear witness to the truth in a culture of lies. All it requires is Daniel to stand and say to Nebuchadnezzar, you're thinking about this problem all wrong. Everything you have has been given to you by God and it will one day be taken away. Give glory to God. Daniel simply bears witness to the truth. Consequences be what they may. It gets better. And in the days of those kings, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Daniel just told Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's gonna fall, that kingdom's gonna fall, that kingdom's gonna fall, that kingdom's gonna fall, and then God will set up his eternal kingdom. And and that may not have meant a lot to Nebuchadnezzar because that's four kingdoms away and he's long dead at that point, but that, you can bet, meant a lot to the people of God in exile to know that in spite of appearances, in spite of what they saw around them where they are enslaved in Babylon, that they would know, that they would believe that God's kingdom is coming and it will have no end. 
that God's throne is secure and there's nothing that current politicians can do to change that. Whether you like them or not, there's nothing they can do. God's throne is secure. When I was growing up, my dad used to always tell me and my siblings that um, one of the things that separates Christians from non-Christians is how we respond in adversity. Because when Christians face crisis, challenge, adversity, we know that it's temporary. We know it's all part of God's plan. We know that God is good and that God has good plans for us. And we know that in the end, God wins. We know that whatever crisis and challenges in front of us was given to us by God for a purpose, which allows us to stay calm, to use our gifts, to stay humble, to work hard, to work for the common good, and courageously bear witness to the truth about God and his world. Because we can stare whatever that thing, whatever that existential crisis is, and we go, God did that. And I know God's good. And that's hard, it's sad, it hurts, whatever it is. But I know God brought that. And so we can stand firm in that knowledge, face it down, be a voice of reason and a testimony of the truth about the world in those moments. And what do you know? It works. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. It worked. It's not always going to work dramatically and miraculously like that. But sometimes it does. Consider the power of bearing witness to the truth about God to a friend, a coworker, a boss, a family member in crisis. Consider the potential power of being able to speak into their situation and go, you know what? I know that your world is crashing down because of this crisis, because everything was propped up on success. And now that success is gone, everything's gone. See, I, I know that your world was propped up, I mean, you wouldn't say it like this, but I know your world was propped up on money. And now that the money is gone, everything's gone. I know that your world was propped up by your beauty and attractiveness. And now that that's gone, I know everything's falling apart. I know that your world was propped up by that relationship. And now that that relationship is gone and has spurned you, everything has fallen apart. But let me tell you something. It was never founded on that in the first place. Let me give you good news about what's really true about the world. Let me tell you what really matters and what's really worth it. What never changes. What will stand firm in the midst of any crisis you may face. Let me tell you about that. Let me tell you, tell you about what it's done in my life. Because that's the key. We will never, ever, ever bear witness. This will never happen unless we've actually experienced it ourselves. And the truth is that it's not just the culture that has changed in the last hundred years. The church has too. 
man named Paul Ellie wrote a book called The Life You Save Might Be Your Own, and in it he says this. He says, we are all skeptics now, believer and unbeliever alike. There is no one true faith, evident at all times and places. Every religion is one among many. The clear lines of any orthodoxy are made crooked by our experience, are complicated by our lives. Believer and unbeliever are in the same predicament, thrown back onto themselves in complex circumstances looking for a sign. As ever, religious belief makes its claim somewhere between revelation and projection, between holiness and human frailty. But the burden of proof, indeed the burden of belief for so long upheld by society is now back on the believer where it belongs. Here's what that means. Ellie is saying, for a long time, you didn't have to sit under the burden of belief because it was propped up by the people and the institutions and the culture around you. And so we didn't really have to reckon with the difficulty of believing in a God who sent his son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be raised on the third day, who sent his spirit to empower us to live as he lived, to live by grace. That's a hard thing to swallow, but it's a lot easier when everyone else around you is saying the same thing. And so when that stuff starts to fall away and we have to actually start to wrestle with the burden of belief, the difficulty of actually living and believing consistently in the gospel without that support around us, without those cultural institutions and social architecture like Charles Taylor says, without that around us, we are just left to stand on our own two feet and we've had crutches for a really long time. If you've ever broken a leg or hurt your knee, I had knee surgery many years back and I spent eight weeks on crutches. And the first time I walked, it was one of the strangest feelings I've ever had as an adult. It felt like an out-of-body experience because I had been propped up for so long that just putting pressure on that leg felt strange to me. And for many of us, as culture changes and, and those crutches go away and we're forced to actually walk out our faith on our own two feet, we will find that we stumble more than we thought we would. We may find that our legs aren't as strong as we thought they were because we didn't have to strengthen them. Because we always had the crutch. So we never had to test their strength. And now, as Ellie says, the burden of belief is where it should be, back on the believer, that we should have to bear that burden, that we shouldn't be propped up because when we get propped up, we get weak. And when that burden is on us, we get strong. Never before has it been so important to root ourselves in our faith. Because we can only bear witness to what we know and what we have experienced ourselves. We can only project confidence in the things we are confident about. We can only demonstrate another way if we can actually see another way. So our first order of business is to root ourselves in the truth so that we can see the lie. To read the scriptures, to pray and listen, to come to the table in communion, to be in community and to have accountability, to open our eyes to the ways that we have accepted this world's assumptions so that we can see what, what was actually propping us up in the first place and what has weakened our legs now that we have to stand on them. 
so that in the moment, in that moment of existential crisis, we don't need a script. We don't have to memorize fancy arguments. That in that moment, we're prepared to simply talk about what we know. And I don't mean what we know. I mean what we know. What we know here so that we can just speak out of our, the fullness of our conviction and experience with God. The ways and moments he's provided for us, cared for us, loved us, sacrificed for us, been there for us, revealed all the things that were propping us up so that we might have to be forced to stand on our own two feet, so that we might be forced to strengthen ourselves. So we must preach the gospel to ourselves first and foremost. This is a moment for us as Christians to lean more and more deeply into the truth of the gospel and the love of our Savior so that we can bear witness, bear witness to the truth as the world is in crisis. Because what we know, this is good news. This, he, he is worth founding our lives on, orienting our futures upon. He is worth it because he is good and he loves us and he has a plan for us. He died for us. He was raised for us, sent his spirit for us that we might live. Let us bear witness to that truth. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not simply send your law to tell us how to live and walk away. Thank you that you did not just send your son to show us how to live and then walk away. Thank you that you did not just die on the cross to pay for our sins and walk away. Thank you that you were not just raised to defeat Satan, sin, and death and walk away. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit that guides and directs and illuminates and convicts. Thank you for the grace that flows from the cross that doesn't just cover our sin, but empowers us to live the way we were made to live. Thank you for the grace of suffering. Thank you for the grace of prosperity. Thank you for the grace of relationships. Thank you for the grace of your word and prayer, fasting, communion. Thank you that there is not a moment in our lives that you are not drawing us to yourself. That there is not a thing that happens, a thing that we know or see or taste or feel, experience at any level that isn't you beckoning us back to yourself. God, draw us to yourself. May we be a light in a dark world. May we be salt. May we bear witness to the goodness of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.